Gospel of John, chapter 6. And Lynn and I did survive the Christmas from Hades. <laughs> Last time we talked, I think that, uh, I don't know when, what we said. But anyway, all the kids got sick, and then uh, we ended up taking them back to Austin. We had three or four of the kids. And uh, I forget how many it was. Our son and his wife, Allison, our son Andrew and his wife, Allison, had a new baby. It was their sixth. So we brought four kids up. And uh, when we did, uh, just to relieve them, and then all of them got sick. And so after three or four days of that, we just drove them home. They were all sick in the car. And then... Uh, well, Lynn got sick uh, the next day, and then I got sick, and then we had it for a week. And so it went through their entire family, even the baby. It was two days older, two weeks old, or something like that. So everybody's getting better. Yes, you can tell I've lost all time schedule. I have no idea. I asked Lynn, I said yesterday, I said, is today New Year's? And she said, what are you talking about? And that's how crazy my mind is. So now, to make things, uh, I shouldn't say worse, but uh, Andrew called up yesterday and said, do you think we can all just come on up? <laughs> so they're going to come up and stay until, uh, see, tomorrow, and then Tuesday and Wednesday. So we're going to have eight of them up here for another few days. We're going to take down our Christmas tree. We decided just to leave it up. This will be the only Christmas we really had. So. Anyway, so it's been a really crazy uh, couple of weeks. And now, to top it off, this particular weekend, which I was looking forward to actually, uh, is uh, an event known as the Academy of Preachers. And 160 or 70 preachers, young guys, 18 to 28, from all over the country, in colleges and seminaries, are in Dallas and uh, preaching. And it's a and then they have these big master classes. One of the master classes is being taught by Joel Gregory, which is sort of impressive. So anyway, this is a this is a national affair, and I was uh, asked to analyze a few of the preachers, young preachers, and then meet with each one of them. So I did that yesterday. I'm going to do that again today after uh, this afternoon. And uh, it's really you know normally I'd be happy to do it, but it's just been such. A, Two weeks, it's really become a burden. <laughs> I hope I don't take it out on the young preachers. <laughs> but anyway, okay, so we are in John chapter 6. And you know, this is not an easy chapter. This is our fourth session in John 6. It's taken me four weeks to cover this. And you know, there's some difficult material in here, isn't there? Uh, Jesus has fed the 5,000. He's taught on four very controversial issues. Uh, he said, I am the bread, the true bread that's come down from heaven. They didn't know what in the world he was talking about. Uh, he said, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood uh, will have everlasting life. That was a shock to the people who heard it. Uh, he said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. So you're in trouble if God doesn't draw you. And that was a shock. And then he said, and all that the Father gives me, I will raise up on the last day. Uh, 
seeming to indicate that Jesus is going to be in charge of the entire resurrection on the last day of human history. And can you imagine somebody coming up to you and saying that to you? I'm, going to, I'm the guy that God's going to use to raise everybody on the last day. I mean, that's pretty hard. Um, so these are very difficult teachings. Now, I want you to think about this. When we get a new church member, a new convert, guess what book we tell them to take? We give them a copy of the John, Gospel of John and say, just read this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this will help you grow as a Christian. And this is one of the most difficult of the Gospels. This is the last Gospel that you should give anybody that's a new Christian. You should start off with the Gospel of Mark. It's very short, very pithy statements, and it's sort of exciting. But the Gospel of John is a very difficult Gospel. So now we are going to cover the last 10 or 12 verses. We're going to go from verse 59 to verse 71. And we're going to divide this teaching today into two sections. Verses 59 through 66, we're going to call this conversation number one. And you'll see how this plays out. And then verses 67 through 71, we're going to call that conversation number two. And you'll see that he's speaking to a different group of people in those verses. Okay? So let's look at verse 59. Everything that we just talked about, <clears throat> this, uh, this last discussion Jesus had with the Jews, uh, which started in verse 41, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven, and so forth. 59 says, And these things Jesus said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Ah, and now we're given a new bit of information. After Jesus leaves Bethsaida, and he has that wild boat ride across the lake to Capernaum in the northwest, we discover that he does the remaining of his teaching in the synagogue. And uh, that means his audience is very limited. He fed 5,000 over in Bethsaida. That was a large audience. You include women and children, it could have been over 20,000. But once he goes in the boat and ends up in Capernaum, he goes into a synagogue and he's teaching. That means he has a much smaller audience. Now remember, some people followed him over there. They said, how did you get here? When did you get here? Uh, these must be only the most curious people who would actually go from Bethsaida and follow Jesus over to Capernaum. They probably had to walk around the northern section of the Sea of Galilee to get there. You know, several miles. Uh, most people wouldn't have followed him. The 5,000 wouldn't have followed him. And maybe there were 50 that followed him. So these people who are going to be listening to him in the synagogue would be very curious people wanting to learn more. Okay? So we get the reaction after Jesus has taught all these four things that I mentioned. Uh, we get their reaction. And notice verse 60. It says, Therefore, many of his disciples... When they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Now the first thing I want you to notice is who makes the reaction? Who is reacting to Jesus' statements? Look what it said. Calls them his disciples. Do you see that? These are not the apostles, however. The, the, the word disciple simply means a follower. These are some of the people, probably among the 5,000, who have followed Jesus, gone into the synagogue, they've heard this, and now they react to his teaching. And notice what they do. First of all, they make an observation. They say in verse 60, 
This is a hard saying. And the Greek word for hard is a word that you'll recognize. It's scleros. From, you've heard of arterio, arteriosclerosis, right? Hardening of the arteries. They take that word and they say, this is a hard saying. It's, what you're saying is too hard to swallow. You know, anybody with a brain, no one with a brain can accept what you're saying. You know, how, how do you expect us to believe this? This is too hard to comprehend, you know, intellectually what you're saying. You know, eat my flesh, drink my blood. So that's the first thing that makes this statement. It's a hard saying. There's a whole book out called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. And in fact, there's a whole series of uh, books out. I think there's three books called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. And this is one of the hard sayings of Jesus, which means it's so hard that none of us, if we were there, could have taken it in without you know, doing a double take. In a sense. Okay. Next thing they do is they ask a question in verse 60. They say, who could understand this? And the answer is what? No one can understand what you're talking about. You expect us to understand this? You know, it doesn't make sense. You know, so this is, this is their reaction. So now we have Jesus' reaction. Okay? So look at verse 61. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, and this is, means that they're doing it amongst themselves. They're not just screaming it out while they're in the synagogue. They're just talking amongst themselves. And he knows about this. He says, he said, does this offend you? which is the word that means stumble. Are you stumbling over this teaching? Is this, is this uh, going to be a stumbling block for you? Is this going to be a hindrance for you to follow me? So he asked them that question. Okay. And then he asked a follow-up question. He said, if you think that's hard, look at this in verse 62. What then, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? If you think it's a hard saying that the Son of Man is, is the true bread that's come down from heaven, what would you say if you saw the Son of Man go up into heaven? If that first thing's a stumbling block, what about this second thing? So in other words, he reverses. Their concern is over the fact that he's saying that he is the true bread that's come down from heaven. They need to eat his flesh, which is, which is the bread. And he's now going to reverse it. He said, if you have a hard problem thinking about me coming down from heaven, what about if you saw me go up into heaven, into the realm of the spirit, where there is no flesh? Okay? Would that be a stumbling block for you too? Would you get hung up on that? Now remember, what is their issue? Their issue is the flesh thing, right? That's the thing that's the hard saying for them. That's the stumbling block. So look what he says in verse 63. He says, It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Now, we have two things that he mentions here. First of all, he talks about the Spirit. And remember, he says, Would you be hung up if you saw me go up where I was before, into the realm of the Spirit, where there is no flesh? So notice what he says in 63. Spirit gives what? Life. That's a positive. You see that? Now look at this. In 63. The flesh profits what? Nothing. That's a negative. 
You got your eyes on the flesh and getting hung up on the flesh. What does flesh profit? Absolutely nothing. You got your eyes on the wrong thing. Now remember when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says to Nicodemus, you must be what? Born again. What's Nicodemus think? Flesh, 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 flesh. Can the guy get back into his mother's womb and be born again? Flesh, 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 flesh. Jesus said, I'm not talking about that. When I say born again, I'm saying you must be born from above. You must be born of the Spirit. And then he makes this statement. That which is flesh is what? Flesh. That doesn't profit anything. That which is spirit is spirit. So marvel not that I say to you, you must be born again. So the spirit, it says, profits much. It gives life. But the flesh profits nothing. It produces death. So what's happening is that they're, they're getting hung up on this flesh, this word flesh. And they're missing the entire point. And Jesus starts now talking about the realm of the Spirit going up to heaven, being born from above, being born of God, being born, you know, of the Spirit, and so on and so forth. And then in the middle of verse 63, he says this. The words that I speak to you are what? Spirit and life. Now see, he's switching from flesh to spirit. See how he's doing it? And now he says this. And let me add another thing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit. Okay? So now he's going to start focusing on his words. Okay? Now, why does he focus on his words? What is it about his words in verse 63? The words that I speak to you are spirit. And two, they are life. Okay? Now, when Jesus speaks, who does he speak for? speaks on behalf of God the Father, doesn't it? What does he say? I don't say anything that I don't see my Father in heaven say first. So every word Jesus speaks is a word from the Father. Every word Jesus speaks is a word from heaven. Every word Jesus speaks is a word from the realm of the Spirit. And every word Jesus speaks produces life. See? He's emphasizing Spirit there. And we know that one time and maybe more than one time, he said, man shall not live by, but by every word that precedes out of the mouth of what? God. And Jesus is speaking the words of God. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't hear God speak. So when Jesus speaks, it's the same as God the Father speaking, and that produces life. So to believe on Jesus is to believe his words. And to feed on Jesus is to feed or devour his words or his teaching, which is the gospel. That's what produces love. Now that, see, this is, can you imagine giving this to a brand new Christian? Say, hey, just, here you go, gospel of John. It's hard enough for me to understand this. And I've worked on it, you know, for a long time to prepare for this. Now look at verse 64. But, he says... There are some of you who do not believe. There are some of you who do not believe. Do not believe on Jesus. Do not believe his words. Do not believe that he represents the Father. Do not believe that he can give life. Do not believe that he will raise people from the dead. There are some of you who do not believe. Okay? 
Now look what happens here. In verse 64, the Gospel writer, in the middle of verse 64, you see it goes from red to black, if you have a red letter edition of your Bible. The Gospel writer, John the Gospel writer, explains why Jesus says this. Now what did Jesus say? There are some of you who do not believe. What does the Gospel writer explain? Look what he says. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. When Jesus said, there's some of you who don't believe, you know why he said it? Because he knew in advance who wouldn't believe. He wasn't caught off guard when a person rejected him and walked with him no more. He said, I just can't believe it. He anticipated it. And you notice there are two categories there. Category in verse 64 is, number one, those who do not believe. He knew from the beginning those who did not believe. And number two, he knew from the beginning those who would betray him. Two different categories. The unbelievers and the betrayers. Unbelief is just rejecting Jesus' teaching. You can do that in good conscience, can't you? You say, I just can't, I just can't it's too hard to swallow, I just can't believe it anymore. That's nothing that's necessarily, you know, a person just has hang-ups and they don't do it. You know, they become a Muslim instead, right? But betrayal, that's a different category than rejection. See, somebody says, will you marry me? And you say no. You've rejected them. Okay, guess what? You have a right to reject them. Right? But if you married them and then you betrayed them, that's another story, isn't it? Betrayal is evil. Betrayal is saying, I'm committing my life to you, and then you turn around and you, you hurt them. And it's an evil act. So there are two categories. The unbeliever, and he knows who didn't believe, even though they were following him, even though they came over from Bethsaida. He knew who was committed and then who would betray him. Then he says this in verse 65. He said, therefore, I have said to you, that no man can come to me unless it's been granted to him by my Father. And that's a repeat from verses 37 and 44 from last week that we talked about. <clears throat> so we won't go into that again, but that is a very important verse. Uh, very interesting, when you look at that, he says, no one can come to me unless the uh, Father draws him. And then John adds this. Verse 67. This is John the Gospel writer adds this. He's explaining this to his audience that he's writing to in 95 AD. From that time, many of his disciples went back. That means they returned to the old way of life. They went back to the old traditions in the past. And they walked with him no more. They stopped walking with Jesus. So, Jesus knew who would stop believing, he knew who would betray him, and John says, you know, from that point, guess what? There are many people who just went back to the old way of life and stopped walking with him. When he went to the next town, they didn't follow him anymore, they just stopped walking with him. They stopped seeking him. And uh, this is the difference between a real believer and a pseudo-believer. The mark of a real believer is that they persevere and they are faithful to Christ from start to finish. 
That's the mark of a real believer. The unbeliever oftentimes is one who starts out with Jesus, maybe responds to an altar call, prays a prayer or whatever, and they start out, but in time, they fall by the wayside. And we know this is one of Jesus' major teachings. He said, no man can put his hand to the plow. He said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and turns back is worthy of what? The kingdom of God. You can't start out and say, oh, wait a second, and turn back. At that point, you've lost it. You know, you're not worthy of the kingdom of God. So, there are people who say they're disciples, uh, and, but they're just curious. They're not totally committed to the Lord. And the way you can tell whether it's a real believer or not is they will be faithful from start to finish. An unbeliever can remain hidden in the midst of other believers. But in time they will be exposed. <clears throat> Looks like they're a believer. To you they look like a believer, but Jesus, Jesus knows who, what they really are. He knows their heart. And in time their unbelief cannot be hidden any longer and it will come out into the open. So when a person walks away from Jesus, that's called apostasy. That's what the church has historically called apostasy. Somebody who starts out with Jesus and they become, they, they apostatize. And the person who does that is called an apostate. That's not necessarily a bad word, it's just somebody who starts out and then turns around and, and rejects. That's not a betrayer. It's not a betrayer. Okay? We've seen people do that. You know people who started out Claimed to be Christians, came to church for years, and then guess what? Next thing you know, they're doing the craziest thing that you've ever thought of. And then they don't come back. If they're a real believer, even if they fall away, guess what? Eventually they'll come to their senses, repent, and come back. The mark of a real believer is he always comes back. Does that make sense? Okay, now we come to the second discussion, conversation. And that begins in verse 67. And this is with the apostles. Notice it says, Then Jesus said to the twelve. See, he was speaking to disciples, a larger group, in verse 59. But now he starts speaking to the twelve. In fact, they may be the only ones still standing. <laughs> they may be the only ones left in the synagogue at this point. Everybody else may have left. We don't know. But he turns to them, and uh, he says this in verse 67. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? Uh, in the Greek language, it is put in the form of a, a negative, and it reads something like this. You don't want to leave too, do you? Boy, what the moment that must have been. When he turns right to them and just looks at them and says, you don't want to leave too, do you? And I don't think he screamed it, I think he just said it. Well, what about you? And that's the question that each one of us must ask. What about me? You know, what do I want to do? So Peter, of course, the spokesman for the twelve, pipes up. He's going to give the answer, just like he always does. And look what he says in verse 68. He first asks a question, and he says this. Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? If we left you, who would we go to? <laughs> and that's a good question, you know. Uh, 
Should we follow another rabbi? You know, what, what would we do? Should we go back to fishing? You know, what would you do if you left Christ? If you decided you didn't want this Christian stuff anymore? Well, who would you go to? Would you go to Muhammad? You know, would you become a Muslim? Would you become a Jehovah's Witness? Would you become a Mormon? Would you become an atheist? Would you become a Jew? What would you do? It's a question that when people reject Christ, they don't quite think about what they're going to do next. You're going to be committed to something. You may just be committed to yourself. And so Peter said, well, where would we go? You know, there's nowhere to go. That's basically what he says. And then he says this at the end of verse 68. You, meaning you alone, have the words of eternal life. And Peter hits the nail right on the head. He's been able to, to look at the situation. He realized that Jesus indeed speaks on behalf of God. And his words are eternal, and they produce eternal life. And then, rather than just keep his mouth shut at that point, which would be the, which is always the best choice, he decides to add a little extra, a little Peterism, you know, something like that. And so look what he says, and this is where Peter gets himself in, into trouble. He says, also, by the way, Jesus probably went, he probably said, Jesus, you have the words of life, and, and Jesus probably went like this, you know. And so now Peter's on the roll. And also, let me tell you something else, you know. Yeah, Peter, let us hear, let's hear your wisdom. Peter says, also, verse 69, we have come, number one, to believe, and number two, know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay? Now, some translations have a variant here, and it reads this way. We've come to believe and to know that you're the Holy One of God. It doesn't really matter. It means basically the same thing, that you're God's representative. You're his holy representative. So notice what Peter says. Two things in verse 69. Number one, he assents to a certain concept. He says, first of all, we believe that you're the Holy Spirit of God. Okay? And number two, he says this. And we know that you're the Holy One of God. Now, on the surface, that looks pretty good. But he's overstepped his boundaries, and Jesus has to pray. Because Peter's speaking on behalf of all 12 of the apostles, Right? He's like the spokesperson. So Jesus corrects Peter, and look what he says in verse 70. Jesus answered them, so even though Peter's doing the talking, he's speaking for all of them, he's, Jesus answered them and said, Did I not choose you, meaning you, you all, the twelve, and one of you is a diabolos. One of you is a devil. Now, Peter said, we believe, and we're committed, and we're assured, and Jesus said, wait a second now. You're speaking for the twelve, but there's, uh, I'm going to tell you, maybe eleven of you are like this. But there's a problem here, Peter. You've overstated the situation. One of you is a devil. And look at the verb there. What's the verb? The verb is, is. What does is mean? <laughs> it is here means right now. Right now, one of you is a devil. We got a sleeper amongst the twelve, an infiltrator, not a real believer, doesn't really hold that Jesus is the Holy One from God. And that word, diabolos, can mean devil or slanderer or accuser. And the amazing thing is, Peter doesn't see this, does it? He couldn't, if Jesus said, well, tell me which one of you are. 
No. <laughs> Peter couldn't have answered that. He wouldn't have had any idea. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows what's in a person from the start. And you can't hide from Jesus, even though you can hide from other believers. So he says, right now, one of you is a devil. And I, In fact, if you read Jesus' statement, and just imagine if you're Peter in verse 7. Jesus said, did I not choose you the twelve? And Peter would say, and he's undermined, yes. And then Jesus would say, and one of you is the devil. And Peter would go, and he's undermined, what? He doesn't see it. Now, the gospel writer John has to explain to his audience uh, what's going on here. So look what he says in verse 71. This is to his audience reading at 95 A.D. Jesus spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. So, uh, it shows you that by the time, in John's audience, wherever he's writing to in 95, it's not general information that Judas was the betrayer. You see, he has to explain that to them. We always sort of assume, well, they had the Bible, didn't they? No, they didn't have the Bible. The Bible as we know it really wasn't canonized until the 300s. So, you know, all they had were the stories. And John's audience may be a very new Christian audience who's not heard the story of Jesus. And they wouldn't have known Judas Iscariot from, you know, somebody else. And so John has to explain that to his audience, that this is the guy, the guy who did this betrayal who is the devil right now, wasn't exposed until sometimes later, and his name is Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And in time he will be exposed. He will not be exposed until one year after verse 71 takes place. So Jesus has celebrated two Passovers so far. We know that from the Passover being mentioned twice. And there'll be another Passover, the third Passover, which takes place the third year when Jesus is crucified, right? So there's one year gap between these verses and Christ's death when Judas Iscariot will betray him and will be exposed as the devil. Now look at his name. We first of all see he's the son of a guy named Simon, but that's not his name. Usually when a person was named according to their father, Simon Bar-Jonah, right? Simon, the son of Jonah, or John. But in this case, he's called Simon, the son of Simon, but that's not what his name is. Look, they call him Judas what? People weren't called by their last names in Bible times. So Iscariot is not his last name. So now you have to figure out, well, what does this mean? Why is he called Judas? Normally we just say Judas, son of Simon, but here it says Judas what? Iscariot. What in the world is that talking about? Well, we know now because in the Hebrew language uh, ish, the word, this is Greek, Iscariot is Greek, but in the Hebrew, which this guy would have been named, uh, the word is actually ish. Ish, if you, some of you who know Genesis, ish means man. Kerioth is a city in southern Judea. Okay, so, this is Judas, a man from Kerioth, 
in southern Judah, whose father happened to be named Simon. Now, why is that significant? Why would the writer, John, put that in there? Because of the 12 apostles, 11 lived in the Galilee area. Only Jesus chose only one from, from Judea. And it's Judas Iscariot. And where are they going to be heading in chapter 7? They're going to be heading down toward Judea. And it begins the last year of Jesus' ministry. And he's going to be betrayed in Judea by a guy very familiar with the workings of things in Judea. A guy from that area named Judas Iscariot. And so he'll play a prominent part in the plot to arrest Jesus. And it'll be at that time that his true colors are exposed. Up until that time, the apostles will not know that he is the devil. They won't even know it on the, on the Last Supper, the day of the Last Supper, which is only a day before he's crucified. They won't, they won't believe that it's Simon. It does, they don't find out that it's Simon until the Garden of Gethsemane after the Last Supper takes place. Now, so... John tells his audience who the betrayer is, and it's Judas Iscariot. Uh, it catches, I'm sure, that uh, that statement caught Peter off guard, but it doesn't catch Jesus off guard. He knows exactly who the betrayer is, even a year before it happens. And by the way, it shouldn't catch us off guard when a person who professes Christ drops by the wayside, or even betrays him. I think John includes this little story right here in his gospel, probably because his own audience in 95 AD had experienced some church members of their own that have departed from the faith. Maybe even amongst the clergy and the leadership of the church. And he's trying to explain, hey, guess what? This happened 50 years ago when Jesus was on earth. One of his own disciples, one of the apostles <coughs> off, departed and betrayed Jesus why should we expect anything different? Don't be caught off guard by this, even when the clergy drops by the wayside. And we shouldn't be caught off guard either, but we always are, aren't we? We're always shocked. And you say, nothing worse could happen, and the next week another one drops by the wayside, and then another one drops by the wayside. And we're always just shocked. But we shouldn't be. This is how it's been from the beginning. So the chapter closes differently than it opens. It opens in chapter 6, in verse 2, with the great multitude following him. See that? It opens with people flocking to him. It closes with people forsaking him. And the only ones standing, left standing, are the twelve. And then when we go into chapter 7, we see that the opposition against Jesus mounts, and even his own family turns against him. And that's where we'll be next week in John chapter 7. Finally got through chapter 6. It's a hard one, isn't it? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can always check ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. All we have to do is say, do we wholeheartedly believe? And are we continually following Jesus? And be determined to do that from start to finish. Oh, Lord. You said that if we do that, then on the last day you'll raise us up. What a great assurance that we have. We thank you for the eternal life that comes through the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through your words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.